the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3. It's a delight to do it with Josh Hammer. There's nothing like the iron bonds of friendship forged in the heat of battle. Josh, is uh, he's got his finger on a lot of buttons. He is the senior editor-at-large at Newsweek. He is the host of his own radio show, The Josh Hammer Show podcast. You can follow him on Twitter at Josh underscore Hammer, two M's, and he has just kicked off a great new project. I was telling you about it on air yesterday, folks. Um, it's uh, Jews Against Soros. Josh Hammer, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Seth, it's always a pleasure, my friend, and I wholly agree with you about the bonds of friendship being forged through the battlefield. Well, yeah, yeah, there's something like them. There's something about brothers in arms and... Uh, it's funny, you know, it's in this in this vast movement of ours, we always find friends and colleagues that we agree with on this thing, but not that thing. And I have to tell you, Josh, I follow you pretty scrupulously. I, I haven't found anything I disagree with you on. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you uh, uh, that that's how that's how strong it is, at least from my perspective. So good work, sir. Good work. You and Will Sharf. Tell us about Will Sharf. Tell us about uh, this new project on George Soros. You will do it better than I did. Jews against Soros, the need for it, the purpose and all that. Well, Seth, you know, the, the sentiment, of course, is mutual. I, uh, I find in you someone who, who gets it, for lack of a better term. I'm not sure that there's a better term or an easier way to say it. You know, I, I'm sure we, I'm sure if we poked around for enough, maybe we had drinks for, for, <laughs> yeah, for, maybe. for yeah. two, three hours, we might be able to find some, some yeah, small maybe. maybe the drink. Possibly, anyway. So, so. Yeah, Will Sharp and I have been have been friends for a few years now. Would would strongly encourage you to go ahead and check out his his own profile, his own work. So, Will, very smart guy, uh, Princeton Harvard Law School clerk for Judge Grunder on the Eighth Circuit. He spent a lot of time in D.C. He was kind of instrumental as an outside force, helping the Supreme Court nominations of, of Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, um, ventures like that. That he. Moved back to Missouri, where he previously lived. He was a federal prosecutor and is now now running to be attorney general in Missouri. So right. yeah, well, I've been friends for a while because right. you know both, both Jewish, both right wing, both have the legal background. So really great guy. He and I been kicking around this music and Soros idea, kind of um, you know, it kind of started almost as a joke. Um, it, it was literally kind of like a, like a joking text back and forth, and then at some point we were like, why not? Let's turn it into something at least somewhat real with some people. Well, I'm glad you did, because, uh, you know, we started noticing maybe two, three years ago this uh, efforted uh, campaign by the left that if you quote uh, George Soros negatively or if you attribute, uh, attribute uh, actions by political actors, whether they're in law enforcement or whether they're think tanks or whether they're elected officials elsewhere and attribute it to, attribute it to them uh, George, George Soros's funding – there, there was this, um, there was this resistance from the left, this odd resistance, claiming that to do so was an anti-Semitic dog whistle or just purely 
anti-Semitic because you're uh, blaming the power on this Jewish man. And it was an interesting trick that I didn't think would have legs, to be honest with you, Josh, primarily because um, the only people who thought of George Soros as Jewish uh, were not the accuser and were not George Soros. It was the left. They were the only ones who, who used that. And it was an interesting and cute, if not clever, way to try and silence criticism of him. And something needs to be said and done about that. We're not going to take it. Yeah, look, I mean, there's a lot to be said here. So first of all, um, you know, when you have the kind of money that George Soros has, has, and when you try to put that out there, you just not try, when you put that out there successfully in the political activist arena, donating to funding all sorts of causes all around the world, from his native Hungary to Israel to the United States to many other countries. I mean, that is necessarily fair game. I mean, when you put yourself out there in the public domain, it is totally fair game. And these disingenuous attempts to shut down any criticism of him under the fake veneer of of anti-Semitism, you know, first of all, I mean, this is somewhat of a pedantic point, but I feel like it's worth saying nonetheless. The man's name is George Soros. I mean, it's not kind of you know Moshe Goldschmidt. I mean, right. It's not kind of it, it's not kind of an overly stereotypical Jewish. I name. didn't know he was Jewish until about ten years ago. Right. Exactly. I mean, so uh, that kind of says all, all you need to know. Second of all, and more pertinent to the point as to why this is so ridiculous, this charge of anti-Semitism for criticizing this man who funds so much in the way of, of destruction and, and, and civilizational arson, civilizational rot, is that George Soros himself, when it comes to issues pertaining to the Jewish people and to the Jewish state of Israel, is on the wrong side right. of all those issues. He's the single largest donor to J Street, which calls itself a pro-Israel operation, but in reality is anything but that. They routinely condemn Israel for its very routine defensive actions against Hamas, jihadists, things like that. You know, George Soros-tied entities have also been tied, uh, financially speaking, to the People's Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, which is a UN-US-EU, you know, internationally recognized terrorist organization. Marxist terrorist organization, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you do these things, you don't get to play the anti-Semitism card. In fact, recently, when Elon Musk himself got in some hot water for criticizing Soros, it was actually Ami Khashikli, who is the state of Israel's anti-Semitism diaspora foreign minister. He's literally the Netanyahu government point man for these issues. He came out and defended Elon Musk and said, no, actually it's good to criticize George Soros because he's harming us. On, on top of that, on top of all the things he's funding, it's an interesting thing that I don't think George Soros himself has ever held himself out as Jewish, Josh, which makes an interesting point that when we criticize him, we're criticizing him on the merits. We're taking him seriously. When he speaks with his money or his mouth, he's speaking on the merits, wanting to be taken seriously. And it's the left who's making the accusations of anti-Semitism. They're the ones who see him as a Jew. Now, you tell me who's the bigot. They're the ones. Exactly. They're the. Well, they're the ones putting the yellow star on his breast. Exactly right. Right, and you know what? I, I, agree, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Seth. There's an additional point to make here as well, which is that the left can have it both ways. Right. You know, I yeah. mean, before Sheldon Halpin passed towards the end of 2020 or early 2021, when I was right around there, before he passed. You know, how many on the left would routinely condemn Sheldon Adelson's role in the Republican Party, right. conservative, Zionist, pro-Israel circle? You know, Paul Singer, who a lecturer said he gets it today, 
you know, any number of, of kind of prominent conservative Jewish donors are routinely in the crosshairs of the American left. And it's not like conservatives, not like Republicans, it's not like Fox News, the Wall Street Journal are up in arms saying, oh, you're anti-Semitic for criticizing the role that Chauvin Adelson are pulling your place. No, because it doesn't matter what your religion, your ethnicity, your heritage, your nationality, whatever. If you were going to play the game at that level, if you were a billionaire who was politically active, if you were shelling out these kinds of dollar stocks, you have every right to be judged by his actions. And in Soros' particular case, that's Let's not forget, he's been very explicit about his so-called progressive prosecution yeah. project. In fact, he had an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal just that summer defending it under his own byline. So that is fair game, period. I'm sorry. I agree with you. The group, uh, the website, if you folks, if folks want to uh, go to it or go to it anytime they have an inclination to criticize George Soros and then get uh, get uh, get the charge of anti-Semitism levels leveled at them, it's Jews Against Soros, JewsAgainstSoros.com. It's it's a really really well done website uh, for something that uh, just the two of you put together, Josh Hammer. And you know there is another element beyond Paul Singer and uh, Sheldon Adelson. But I'm going to guess that there is more vitriol online, in social media, and in the regular media against the likes of you or Dennis Prager or me than there is against George Soros. And not one of us would ever hide behind that shield, and not one, not one person would ever in the conservative movement say that you can't attack those guys because of their ethnicity or religious beliefs. Right, of course. Yeah, I mean, all of this stuff— it's just, it's just totally and completely fair game. I mean, you know, with the fact that someone like Jake Tapper or David Axelrod you know, happens to share my religion, would, would that preclude me from debating them? <laughs> yeah, that's no, that, no. that that is what they want. They want an a priori chill on a de- on 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 any critique of the left. And if they happen to be Jewish, so much the better. And they'll warp themselves into weird th- into weird places on this too. This is how you got Larry Elder as the black face of white supremacy in a way. Josh, I got to take a quick break. Can you stay another segment? I'd love to talk about some of your recent columns with you if you have some time. Sounds great. Great. Thank you. Josh Hammer is my guest. He is the senior editor at large at Newsweek and the host of the Josh Hammer show. His uh, new project, uh, among many, but the one he unveiled yesterday, Jews Against Soros, JewsAgainstSoros.com. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Josh Hammer is my guest. He's a senior editor at large at Newsweek. He is the host of the Josh Hammer Show. You can follow him on Twitter at Josh underscore Hammer, H-A-M-M-E-R. Josh, you read about a lot of different things, but if it's okay, I wanted to ask you about uh, a recent column of yours. I think it's it's actually maybe two back, and it has to do – it's titled Release the Manifesto. Boy, it's amazing how fast news stories go by and appear. You know, these objects in the rearview mirror really do seem farther than they are. Um, This isn't that long ago, and it's a totally forgotten story. This, of course, is the awful story of uh, the shooting at um, the Christian Elementary School in Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, three children, three adults killed. Um, There seemed to have been a weird, odd greater amount of sympathy for the shooter than the victims. 
um, at least from the administration's point of view. What we did know was that there was a detailed manifesto. What the FBI told us was that they would be going through the manifesto and releasing it. And obviously, here we are. Either they're still going through with it or like at the end of Indiana Jones, they're burying it with deep, deep top experts never to see the light of day. What uh, What's going on here, Josh? Well, look, I, I think what's going on is fairly straightforward. I mean, I think what's going on here is you had a deranged transgender shooter who was actually a former student at this Christian school who probably went down some very deep, dark paths, might have even been jacked by the testosterone injections. I, w- I would like to see a toxicology I report. always want the toxicology report. You betcha. I want the toxicology yeah. report, and I want to know the family structure for the first 18 years of their life. That's what Absolutely. I want to know. But it seems to me like what, what happened, and you know, there are some details that have come to life that really, I think, vindicate this narrative that I'm, that I'm about to explain. And one of those details is that during this horrific rampage, the shooter actually um, digressed from the school building. And Seth, you kind of have to not put yourself in that position, God forbid. You kind of have to, kind of have to imagine the situation. I mean, you are probably about to die. You are a school shooter. This is like your final act of so would be martyrdom. And you take the time to divert from the, from the school to go to the church next door, as the shooter did here. And what did Audrey Hale, the shooter, decide to shoot up? Well, she decided to shoot up a class representation of Adam, first man God creates in the Book of Genesis narrative. No less symbolic a figure. Audrey Hale put seven rounds through the stained glass depiction of Adam. So why would someone do that? I mean, it seems to me so obvious what is going on here. You, you have someone who was once a Christian, she attended a school for at least a brief time as a child, who became a, a, a transgender person, went down some dark paths and decides to go out in a fit of blazing glory by killing Christians and trying to vindicate her newfound pagan ideology. I, I mean, that is that is basically what it seems to me like what happened. I highly, highly suspect the manifesto, if it were to see the light of day, and I hope that it does, would vindicate that narrative. But for the LGBT lobby and for the transgender activists, those who are in the medical profession who profit off of these horrific surgeries, you know, there's a, there's a real motivation here to fix that manifesto and make sure it never sees the light of day. And I, I, I suspect that is why we are currently still in litigation involving the Metropolitan National Police Department as to whether this manifesto will actually ever see the light of day before a judge as you and I speak. There should be a decision this month sometime in early to mid-June or so. And again, I really hope that we get the manifesto released. It's really the least, the very least we can do for any semblance of justice out of this utterly horrific episode. Utterly horrific. And, uh, you know, the, the, the ripples from it seem to be um, an odd, protected. It's a weird thing that's happened to crime in the past, what, five, six, seven years, Josh? I don't remember it being much older than that. This odd thing about the media and the federal uh, federal agencies' view of crime, what gets highlighted, what gets remembered, what gets uh, memory hold, what gets forgotten, really depends on some uh, ancillary thing. Is really more and more increasingly 
becoming dependent on ancillary things like race of victim, race of assailant, and now obviously gender of victim and gender of assailant. It really does it really does raise interesting questions about about how we politicalize violence in this country and how seriously we do or don't take it. And it seems one side is heavily politicalized in it. And one side wants to take it much more seriously, theirs on theirs and ours on ours. And it's so unfortunate. But it's another example of just everything becoming sifted through so many filters of politics that just didn't used to be. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, look, to take it back to what we were talking about on our last segment, the left can have it both ways. They're, they're hypocritical when it comes to adults and Saker versus Soros. But they're hypocritical here as well. Yep. I mean, you know, when the mass shooting fits the leftist intersectional narrative, so the horrific shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, with the white supremacist still on the roof in 2015, or a similar white supremacist shooting in the supermarket of Buffalo, New York, about a year ago, May, I think it was, of 2022. You know, when it fits their narrative, they are always quick to jump to these massive national, international sweeping conclusions about the threat of white supremacy and so forth. But when it appears that the motivation might impugn their agenda or perhaps in the long run actually undermine its advancement, you know, they want to deep fix the whole thing. So, I mean, once again, you can't have it both ways. I mean, I, like you said, I personally find it kind of loathsome to, to play this game. I mean, we're talking about innocent human beings. We're talking yeah. innocent children, yeah, for children God's here. sake. Exactly I, right. I mean, yeah. as bad as it gets, right, this is just horrible stuff. I mean, I, I, I really do lament the fact that we're talking about I know. This. But, um, again, the left cannot have it both ways, and I brought the toxicology report, because if there is any reason to believe that the shooter was, was possibly acting um, because of the testosterone injections, I mean, you know, the, a lot of these gender transition surgeries, yep. so to speak, sure. a.k.a. mutilations, are already kind of under the microscope yep. in so many states. Yep. You know, that's very relevant information from a lawmaker, public policy perspective as well. Yeah, and that's the stuff that can never uh, see the light of day. A, if it counters the narrative that white supremacy is the most dangerous threat to Americans. B, if someone isn't a white person, we will make them a white person if they're black or Hispanic, if they act in any way that seems to be somewhat right of Joe Lieberman. And then C, if there's anything to discover there that runs against the leftist narrative, that is to say these transgender these transgenderizing drugs, or perhaps other illegal drugs, which you find all too commonly in these school and youth shootings as well, they're just going to deep six it. And it um, it augurs bad for public policy because we're, we're shadow boxing in the dark effectively. Yeah, no, exactly right. But look, the transgender phenomenon is, it is a hot topic right now, yeah. and we are having a debate in the state, and to the extent that this horrible tragedy can shine some light on the downsides of these testosterone injections, we need that information to come to light. Absolutely. Josh Hammer, you're a, you're a prince, and I appreciate uh, everything you do, including lending some of your time to us here in Phoenix. Josh Hammer, Newsweek Senior Editor-at-Large and host of The Josh Hammer Show. Godspeed, brother. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Uh, so we're heading into the back nine of the show. Can I say that? The back nine? I don't know. People know what it means if they play golf, I suppose. The back part of the show. I think it makes sense. You know what it meant. Yeah, I think this is the, yes, from 5.30 to 6, it's known as the back nine. Make that part of our lexicon. Now. Yes, this is now part of our lexicon. By the way, I didn't ask you about your uh, 
political pin today. What do we got? So I've got uh, re-elect Carter Mondale. You've had a Carter Mondale before, haven't you? I've had a Carter Mondale '76. I've got a lot of a lot, a lot of pins. You know, I'm going to have some overlap here at some point of campaigns, so, like with our music bumper music. There's, they're going, it's going to play more than once. But that's the re-election campaign. Of yes, Sid. this is from 1980. Yeah. And, and the reason I wear this is because I really feel like we are kind of uh, feel, experiencing somewhat of a repeat of yeah. 1980. Yeah. It's either a repeat of 68 or a repeat of 80. I'm not sure which. My my money's on uh, 1980. You know, we have a a Kennedy challenging the current president. We have a governor of California who's looking – who has his eyes on the office. We have a former cabinet official who's running. We have, uh, you know, a former ambassador now who's running. And now really the question is who's going to play the wild card and who's going to be the John Anderson of this campaign? Yeah, or or if you go to 1968, who's going to be the George George Wallace Wallace, you also had a Kennedy challenging an incumbent Democratic president, uh, in fact, this Kennedy's dad, and uh, urging – which which led, of course, as we discussed before, to the incumbent not wanting to run for re-election. Yeah, and and, and if, there's a lot of speculation about that with Biden right now, right? And if, according to the reports, that Mike Pence throws his hat in the ring, yeah. then we'll have a, a former vice president. Yeah. We had Bob Dole in 1980, That's former right. vice presidential candidate yeah. running. Yeah. I, 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 my eyes are on 1980 as the repeat. All right, yeah. one, one or the other. By the way, I think that George Wallace campaign of 68 – was the greatest number of votes on a third-party ticket until Ross Perot, I think? Ross Perot never got any electoral votes. Oh, so then Wallace, Wallace still did, beat yeah. him. Okay, so but Wallace still beat but, him. But, he prob- but I don't think Wallace got the popular vote that Ross No, did. I, I think yeah. Ross Perot yeah. got yeah. He got somewhere between 10 and 12 percent of the popular something vote. Something like yeah. that, yeah, something like that. Thank you, David. Um, yes, Josh Hammer. Talking about... You know how we play these games with the facts that are right before our eyes, whether it's about what we know already with regard to the Nashville shooting, what a, whether it's what we know about almost anything, uh, whether it's what we know to be true about George Soros. I mean, it's just obviously true when Josh Hammer criticizes Soros or when I do or Prager or someone. I mean, it's just it's inherently true. It's not anti-Semitic. And, and I want to flesh out that point I was making because I believe George Soros deserves a lot of criticism, and I don't want anyone to ease up on the accelerator on this simply because they're called anti-Semitic for doing so. Please understand this is a very important point I'm about to make. When George Soros does what he does or says what he says, he's doing it on the merits. He's doing it because he believes in it. He's not doing it because he's Jewish. He doesn't even consider himself Jewish. He doesn't affiliate with the Jewish religion. When we criticize him, we're criticizing him on the merits, taking his arguments seriously, or at least as seriously as he would like us to take them. When some third party from the left comes to Soros's defense and alleges anti-Semitism, they're not taking his arguments or ours on the merits. They're merely looking at his ethnicity. That, and, and by doing that, by making his ethnicity or religion the point— They're the bigots. They're attributing to him something he doesn't attribute to himself, and they're attributing something to us we aren't arguing. They're the ones, as I said to Josh, it's a stark point, but it's, I think, accurate. They're the ones who are making it a Jewish thing. They are the ones making it a Semitic thing, which by making his only worth the fact that he is Jewish, making them, in fact, the true anti-Semites here, making them, in fact, the ones who are trying to identify him as Jewish when he doesn't and trying to make it a point that he is Jewish when we aren't making that point either. Don't fall for it. 
don't succumb to it. It's a nasty business that the left is engaged in when they're doing that. It's beyond identity politics. It's identity politics wedded to, as I was saying, an a priori chill against conservative speech and thought and with a soupçon of anti-Semitism on their part as well. Don't fall for it. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. I was thinking about something else Josh Hammer was talking about in our in our discussion about Soros and then also the discussion about the Nashville shooting, which is, again, things we can't talk about and hoops we have to jump through to try and get to the truth of things, or at least hoops perhaps the left has to jump through to try and convince us that things aren't what they seem. I think it's more that. And this is what triggers all the Orwellian language. This is what changes the natural and normal meaning of things. This is how you get Larry Elder. Well, if we have to tie him to white supremacy, how are we going to do that? Well, we'll make him, we'll call him the black face of white supremacy. And you've seen this with uh, other violent actors as well, like the, uh, like the guy who, uh, who crashed into the White House gates uh, about a week ago. Also a white supremacist, although Hispanic. Um, We engage here in these exquisite rituals of insignificant meaning. Exquisite rituals of insignificant meaning. We have to make sure we say the right thing, even if we don't believe what we're saying. And I have a hard time believing sometimes that the left even believes what they're saying. I was quoting Vaclav Havel in my opening monologue. And um, a man well worth reading, just a, just a great hero to the freedom movement of the 70s, 80s, and then, of course, his ultimate, uh, his ultimate victory becoming the, the, um, the cornerstone that was scorned, becoming the chief cornerstone, becoming the prime minister of the Czech Republic, which, when it was under Marxist rule, put him in prison. But through that experience in the 70s, he wrote a very important essay. You can get it online. It's one of the most important essays, I think of the 20th century called The Power of the Powerless. You ever read it, David? The Power of the Powerless. Let me give everyone a homework assignment if they haven't read it. And he goes into, he doesn't use this phrase, I think originally Hadley Arcus gave us this phrase, but he goes into this point of exquisite rituals of insignificant meaning. Um, You know what they are when it came to COVID, don't you? You know, you have to show the mask even well after everyone knew it wasn't working. Uh, You had to boast of or maintain that you got a vaccine even when you knew your risk from succumbing to anything uh, insalubrious from COVID was going to affect you. And we did this to kids, by the way. We did this to children, the research of which is showing not one of whom under the age of 19 died without another serious comorbidity attached to them. And we're still discovering as we speak the folly of that policy as we're now discovering more and more uh, side effects. Uh, one might uh, one might even call them iatrogenic effects of those vaccines. But we went through that exquisite ritual of insignificant meaning just to prove we were following the science or, you know, my mask protecting you is yours was protecting me. Or, you know, what was it who says I'm a weakling for wearing a mask? Something like that. Ignorantio Alenci, 
making an argument none of us ever made. <laughs> okay. Back to the best highlight of this, Vaclav Havel's essay in 1978, uh, The Power of the Powerlessness. He, pos- he talks about the green grocer who, you know, the grocery store owner or the shopkeeper who is forced to put in his window the sign that says uh, workers of the world unite. Um, And he has to do it even though he doesn't necessarily believe it. Havel writes, the greengrocer may be even indifferent to the semantic content of the slogan he has to exhibit. He does not put the slogan in his window from any personal desire to acquaint the public with the ideal it expresses. This, of course, does not mean that his action has no motive or significance at all or that the slogan communicates anything to anyone. The slogan is really a sign, and as such, it contains a subliminal but very definite message. It might be expressed this way. I, the green grocer, live here, and I know what I must do. I behave in the manner expected of me. I can be depended upon and am beyond reproach. I am obedient, and therefore I have the right to be left in peace. And this message, of course, has an address C. It is directed above to the greengrocer's superior, and at the same time as it, it is a shield that protects the greengrocer from potential informers. And the actual meaning really then at the end of the day is that it's a slogan that is rooted in merely his ability to exists, to exist, to exist. He would be imprisoned or shut down by the government, by his superiors, or by would-be customers if he doesn't do and utter what the regime forces him to say or utter. This country started off quite apart and different from that. We did not compel speech or thought in this country. And whenever that kind of First Amendment claim was tested in this country, and it was tested heavily during World War I and World War II, we almost always came out, almost always came out on the side of the dissenter who didn't feel he was obliged to state what the government told him he had to state. As Robert Jackson put it, those who begin the coercive elimination of dissent will soon find themselves eliminating dissenters. Enforced unification of consent maintains only the unanimity of the graveyard. I would take those words and emblazon them, emblazon them in the Oval Office or the Department of Justice and every schoolhouse door as well. We'll be right back. Thanks for uh, spending some of your afternoon with us. I didn't realize this till someone pointed it out to me. Gosh, you know, if they can't make you hang the sign in your store, they'll make you hang the sign in your house. And if possible, do both. You may recall uh, that the Hulu uh, uh, web streaming uh, service, uh, entertainment streaming service, did a, uh, did a series on the 1619 Project, promoting it, you know, um, swallowing hook, line, and sinker, the Nicole Hannah-Jones 1619 uh, story of America, which is not the story of America. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a factually, ideologically sifted revision of the story of America. Not sufficient. ABC has now um, been broadcasting the series. I guess Hulu wasn't, uh, wasn't enough. ABC is now doing it on network. Um, this is this is 
a crime, really, against modern man. It's a crime against modern man to erase a country's history so deliberately, so audaciously, so boldly, and with such little critique or pushback. You know, it's not enough that they got it onto Hulu. It's not enough that they got it into thousands and thousands of schools across the country. They're now putting it right into your living rooms in prime time. If anyone you know succumbs to any of that kind of propaganda, this is really crime against history, a history that doesn't need a crime against it waged, a history that has been very front forward on its warts and faults, send them to any number of books or columns that address Nicole Hannah-Jones's documentary and the lies about American history she is trying to pour into our collective minds. Boy, I'll tell you, you, you don't have time to read Vaclav Havel? Go read Harrison Bergeron. You can find that one, too, by Kurt Vonnegut. It's a little bit shorter. It's a little bit starker. It might also be a little bit more true, scarily enough. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Liebson, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs>